It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Um, if this is your first time here, we're really happy to be with you this morning. Um, you guys would take a moment, open your Bibles to Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah 1. And we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. Nehemiah 1. 1 through 4, we are starting a brand new sermon series this morning. We're going to spend 19 Sundays in the book of Nehemiah, uh, and that'll take us on into Advent um, till the last uh, Sunday of November. Uh, So we are looking forward to to spending some time in this book and and digging into this book and uh, beholding the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ in this book. Um, So... We're going to start this morning looking at Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. This is kind of introduction to Nehemiah, which you probably saw in the bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. Uh, also in the bulletin you, you received when you walked in this morning, uh, if this is your first time here, there's a little connect card uh, inside of the uh, bulletin that you received when you walked in. If you take a moment and fill that out, uh, that's just a, a good way for us to, to learn a little bit about you and, and, uh, and know how we might get in contact with you and and possibly get to connected with you, get together with you, grab a cup of coffee or lunch or something, and, and learn more about you and see if we might be able to get you plugged into what God is doing here in our church family. Uh, but for now, let's look at Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. Uh, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, whenever you are ready. Uh, we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired these words And so we believe, therefore, that this is God's word to us. This is God's voice. He is speaking to us. His word is him speaking to us. And so let's listen with reverence and joy to the voice of our God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, uh, a really important part of a really important part of getting ready to enjoy a really good meal is having a properly set table. Um, now, in the Green household, we are uh, absolutely terrible at this. Uh, if you have multiple young children, or um, if you've ever visited a household for dinner that has multiple young children, you might know what I'm talking about. Uh, dinner time for us, uh, it, it's like a small-scale miracle that it even happens. Um, but when we finally sit down and pray and begin eating, uh, we start to realize we forgot drinks, uh, we forgot napkins, we forgot to turn off the oven, Uh, We forgot to get hot sauce, um, and I usually find myself getting up several times 
before I actually get to enjoy the meal, the, the feast set before me. And so properly setting the table is a really helpful thing to do if you're going to enjoy the meal before you. Well, that's our goal this morning. Uh, we want to properly set the table for the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we have this, this glorious feast before us, the book of Nehemiah, this, this delicious, nutritious, plenteous feast. Uh, there's so much here for us to enjoy, but this story, this, this book, the book of Nehemiah, also comes with some challenges for us. Um, it, it took place in a different time, in, in a different culture. Uh, It took place at a different point in the storyline of redemptive history than than we currently inhabit. It took place around 500 years before the coming of of Jesus. And so we need to get ready. We need to to put all of our napkins and utensils in place. We need to get our cups and plates in place. We need to make sure that Frank's is on the table. We need to make sure that everything is ready. We, We need to get ready and prepare and set the table for the book of Nehemiah. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll even get to enjoy some appetizers and sample some of our feasts this morning. And so that's our goal this morning. And to put things in their proper place, we need to understand where Nehemiah is placed in the biblical storyline. You may have heard us talk about this around here some, but something essential that we need to, to understand about the Bible in order to read it correctly uh, is, is to understand that the Bible is a story. It's a story. Uh, It's not a collection of rules or a collection of random stories or a a collection of moral parables or a collection of topical lessons to help us through life's issues. Um, The the Bible is a story. It's a story that's centered on the person and work of Jesus. And to understand the individual books of the Bible correctly, including the book of Nehemiah, we need to understand its place within the story. And so we're going to talk about the story so far. We also need to understand uh, the centrality of the city of Jerusalem if we're going to understand the book of Nehemiah correctly. Uh, The the setting and and focus of the book of Nehemiah is largely on the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah's great concern throughout the book is the rebuilding and reforming and the renewing of the city of Jerusalem. And it's it's not just Nehemiah that focuses on this. In fact, all of Scripture, uh, uh, biblical scholars have often said that all of Scripture could be said to be a story about the city of God, the city of God. And that's what Nehemiah is concerned about. He's concerned about the city of God, the place where God's people and and presence dwelled. And so we're not only going to look at the story so far, we're going to look at the city in need. And lastly, we we need some proper introductions. Uh, This book is called Nehemiah. Well, who who is Nehemiah? What's his deal? What's he like? What kind of man is he? What, What does he care about? We need to know these kinds of things if we're going to indeed be uh, reading this book faithfully. And so we're going to look at the story so far, the city in need, and we're also going to look at the man God sent. The story so far, the, the city in need, and the man God sent. And all of this, we're going to look at all of this to make sense of the story of the book of Nehemiah, in which we find that Nehemiah is sent to help lead the restoration of the city of God. Nehemiah is sent to help lead the restoration of the city of God. Let's dig in. So first, the the story so far. Uh, Well, things in Nehemiah's day, they were uh, a a far uh, cry, far different for the city of Jerusalem than they were in the days of King David. Uh, In King David's days, uh, Jerusalem was flourishing. The people were multiplying. The city was well protected. The people were living, for the most part, in a way that pleased God and witnessed to the world that they were God's holy and chosen people. But as you know, the story took a very dark turn. So we see things are dark. They're bleak in Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. How did we get there? 
Well, Solomon, David's son, ascended to the throne after David died. And uh, things went all right at first. Uh, when he first began to reign, Solomon built the temple, uh, uh, the, the temple, the place where God's presence dwelled, uh, presence dwelled, where he dwelled in the midst of his people. Uh, Solomon built this temple, and uh, the city of Jerusalem became the location of the temple of God. It became the place where God's people and presence dwelled. It became the city of God, the city where God's presence dwelled in the earth. But as we see the, the story told in, in, in 1 Kings, as we see Solomon began to chase after women and wealth and phony gods over and against his God, the God of the Bible. And uh, the rest of the people followed him in this, including his son, who was the next king, King Jeroboam. Uh, king Jeroboam ascended to the throne and, and he led the people into idolatry as well, worshiping golden calves just as they had done back in the desert in Exodus. And because of Jeroboam's unrighteousness, and the unrighteousness of the people of Israel, the Lord caused the kingdom of Israel to split in two, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Jerusalem was in Judah. That's a tiny little kingdom just south of Israel. Israel was the larger, Judah was the smaller of the two. And uh, things did not get any better after this uh, in Israel or in Judah. The kings that both of these kingdoms had were continually wicked. They continued to lead the people into idolatry. They continued to oppress the poor. They continued to disobey God's law. And so eventually God did exactly what he said he would do to the people of Israel if they were unfaithful to their covenant with God. He sent them into exile. He sent them into exile just as Adam and Eve had been sent into exile back in Genesis 3. He sent them out of the promised land, out of the city God, into exile, away from his presence. And we need to understand that the, the Lord said he would do this. Okay, these, these God's covenant people, they were told back in Deuteronomy about the two possible outcomes of their covenant with God. If they were faithful, God told them in Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, that they would be blessed. Uh, and, and he told them about all these blessings that they would enjoy as God's chosen people. And yet, if they were unfaithful to the covenant, if they didn't worship the right God in the right way, if they didn't obey his commandments, they were told in Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68, and Deuteronomy 29, 25 to 28, that they would be cursed. And he told them about all of these curses that they would suffer, including divisions of their, their kingdom, having a multitude of corrupt leaders, and that they would eventually be sent into exile. And these curses, they came in stages. It started with the division of the kingdom between Israel and Judah. And the curses were, were realized in 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom, Israel, was destroyed and the people taken into exile by the Assyrians. And then in 586 B.C., when the southern kingdom, Judah, faced a similar fate at the hand of the Babylonians. The Babylonians came and they attacked Jerusalem and they burnt down their gates and they destroyed the city. And the soldiers went into the temple, the place where God's presence dwelled with his people, and they destroyed it. And they carried off all of the temple furnishing, all of the temple furnishings to Nebuchadnezzar's palace, which is in modern-day Iraq. And they scattered the people of Judah throughout the land. But as they were going into exile, the Lord made a promise through his prophet Jeremiah, which was later repeated through the prophet Daniel. He made a promise that the people of Israel, that the people would return to Jerusalem and that they would be restored in 70 years time. And there were all sorts of questions about how this could even be possible. Like it didn't just seem improbable that this would happen. It seemed impossible. How would the people of Judah and Israel return to this city? 
How would the temple be restored? How could God possibly return his people to and restore the city of God after it had just been destroyed by fire and the people scattered throughout the world? Well, as we know, God is a God who keeps his promises. And eventually the nation of Persia defeated and overtook the Babylonians. And the Persians, they had a different sort of philosophy for for how to deal with different sort of uh, religious beliefs and practices uh, of the nations that they ruled over. The Babylonians, you know, they would destroy temples and carry off all the temple furnishings to, to Babylon like they had done to Jerusalem. But the Persians, they would allow the nations that they ruled over to continue to worship their own gods in, in the ways that they believed to right, uh, in the ways that they believed to be right. And so they thought that this better served their sort of imperial agenda. And so God used this Persian pagan king, King Cyrus, and Cyrus decreed in 539 BC that the, that the people of God, the people of Jerusalem could return to the city of God to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their city, to rebuild the city of God and to restore it. And so from 539 to 515 BC, roughly 70 years after they were exiled, the people of God in waves began to return and rebuild the temple in the city. And this brings us to the book of Ezra. And now we need to understand, uh, we, we need to, to know about the book of Ezra if we're going to understand Nehemiah correctly, because the two are actually one book. Okay, the two are actually one book. In the original canon, they're, they're one book, similar to how First and Second Kings are one book, and First and Second Chronicles are one book. Well, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, sort of part one and part two. And Ezra contains many of the journals and records of of Ezra. And Nehemiah contains many of the journals and and records of Nehemiah. But a later author, someone we don't exactly know who it is, came and they compiled these journals and these records and these writings from these two men. They added some some commentary uh, as a narrator. And sometimes it might be confusing as you're reading uh, these two books and it might seem like Ezra and Nehemiah are the ones speaking and then someone else, an anonymous narrator, will kind of come in and offer their own comments and historical context and all that. Uh, so you need to know that as you're reading these two books. And let me encourage you also to, to read these books. You need to read these books. Uh, this week, take some time. Read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, it, it takes about 40 minutes to read through Ezra, uh, and it takes about an hour to read through Nehemiah. And it'll take even less time. You have permission to kind of skim over the long lists of names that you can't pronounce and all that. Uh, so, so take some time. Turn off The Bachelor, whatever garbage is on TV, and, and read through Ezra and Nehemiah. It, it'll take two hours of the 112 hours that you're going to be awake this week. So read them. Uh, and even if you don't have enough time to read through Nehemiah, take some time, read through Ezra, Ezra, because we're going to be walking through Nehemiah in the weeks to come. And you need to have somewhat of an understanding of what takes place in Ezra if we're going to read Nehemiah correctly. And what you'll find as you read Ezra is that it's the story of the people of God coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they come in waves. We see the first group of exiles come back in Ezra 1 through 6. This is the first group. And uh, they're led by two men, uh, Zerubbabel and a priest named Jeshua. And uh, this group rebuilds the temple and they finish in 516 BC, exactly 70 years after they were sent into exile in 586 BC, just as Jeremiah had promised. And another wave returns in Ezra, uh, in Ezra with Ezra leading them in Ezra 7 through 10. But largely after rebuilding, rebuilding the temple, things come to a standstill. Uh, The neighbors, they don't like the Jews rebuilding the city. 
uh, the king of Persia, because the neighbors don't like it and because uh, they're accused of some sort of conspiracy, the king of Persia, a new king, he puts a stop to the work and the restoration of the city comes to a halt. And, and that's just the problem's outside of the people of God, outside of Jerusalem. Within Jerusalem, the people are disobeying and disregarding God's word. Their lives are not being reformed according to the word of God. They're not experiencing a renewal of biblical worship like Ezra had desired and was seeking to lead them into. And so the book of Ezra ends with the city unfinished and the people failing to obey God's word. They're they're a mess. And so we see next the city in need. The city in need, which is where we pick up in Nehemiah. Go ahead and look at Nehemiah 1, beginning with verse 1 again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. So we see who this book is, is about and whose records we get the book from. And he goes on to say, Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. And it's while he's there that uh, Hananiah, Hanani, Hanani, sorry, Hanani, that's his name, one of his brothers came with certain men from Judah, And Nehemiah asked them about the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they tell Nehemiah that the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so in the book of Ezra, we see the rebuilding and the restoration and refurnishing of the temple because the neighbors didn't like it. They sent a letter to the Persian king and they asked him to put a halt to the rebuilding of the city and they accused the Jews of conspiring to rebel against the Persian Empire. Well, you know, the king can't have that. And so he puts a stop to the rebuilding of the city after the temple is rebuilt. And therefore, the city is basically in the same shape that it was uh, in after the attack of the Babylonians around a century earlier at this point. The gates were burned down. The wall broken down. There's probably overgrowth and decrepit buildings and the people are shamed. They're at a standstill in their work. They're facing outside uh, opposition and inside opposition. They're struggling with sin. Some of the very same sins that led to their exile in the first place. Things are bad. The city is in great need. And we should note briefly that in those days, a city wasn't really a city if it didn't have walls. Uh, we don't really understand this today because walls aren't really necessary uh, uh, for us anymore. But at the time of Nehemiah, walls were a city's first line of defense in their military attack. Uh, they kept out enemies who might wish to do the city harm. They kept out wild animals who have no business being in a city. They served as an important symbolic function as well. They, they symbolized to the city's citizens and to outsiders that the city had strength and security and peace. And these Jews that had returned from the exile had been there for decades at this point, close to a century. And still, the city had not been rebuilt. The wall was still in shambles. The gates are still destroyed by fire. The city was weak and vulnerable and ashamed. We would also do well to note here that the city of Jerusalem was not just like any old city. Okay, that's why Nehemiah asks about this city in the first place. The city that he's probably never actually even stepped foot in a city that he's probably never even visited or seen. He's concerned about it, and he asks about it because the city of Jerusalem is the city of God. The city of Jerusalem is the place of the the presence and the people of God. That's what the city of God is. It's, It's the place of the people and presence of God. It's where God dwells amongst his people. 
It's supposed to be the light of the world, a city on a hill, they used to call it. It's supposed to be a representation of heaven on earth. It's a city that's supposed to represent uh, to the world, to the watching world, what heaven is like, what the kingdom of God is like. And here it is destroyed, burned down, and ashamed. It's no wonder that Nehemiah is so broken over this. And this is an important part of setting the table if we're going to be properly applying the book of Nehemiah to our lives today. Because I, you know, I've, I've seen uh, some people talk about the book of Nehemiah and the city of Jerusalem like this. They say, you know, the book of Nehemiah is about the restoration of the city of Jerusalem, and we can apply that to our modern-day efforts to restore our city. Uh, for us, it would be the city of Dayton. And uh, we, might even, we might be tempted to draw a direct line from Jerusalem to Dayton as we read this book. That might especially be a temptation for us because we're a very city and mission-minded church. But that's not actually a faithful way to apply the book of Nehemiah today. The city of Dayton, it it does absolutely deserve our love and care and service. And there are scripture texts that we could look at that speak to that. But that's not what Nehemiah is about. Nehemiah is about the restoration of the city of God. Nehemiah is about the restoration of the place of the people and presence of God. And so in, 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 in the new covenant, what is the place of the people and presence of God? Oh, thank you, the church. Help us, Lord. It's the church in the new covenant. What's, what's supposed to represent heaven on earth? What, in the new covenant, what is supposed to represent the kingdom of God in the earth today? The church. The, the church is the city of God. That's why, it, it, that's what the first several chapters of the book of Acts is about. It's about the church as the new place of the people and presence of God. The, the new temple. We are his people. We are his citizens. We are the place where his presence dwells. We're a representative of heaven for the people of the earth. And so as we walk through the book of Nehemiah, that's how we're going to apply this book. We're going to be called to greater care and concern for the church like Nehemiah has for the city of God. We're going to be called to a greater care and concern for the elect exiles who are currently scattered throughout the world and outside of the city of God who need to be brought in and brought home. That's the the lost elect, those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, but who are not currently walking with Jesus and who need to be brought into the church, into the city of God, where they can walk with Jesus for the rest of their lives in the city of God, be brought home to the city of God. We're going to be called to a greater care and concern for the protection and building up of the church. We're going to be called to greater sacrifice and prayer for and service of the church. We're going to be called to see where the vulnerabilities and weaknesses and unfaithfulness of the church exist and to respond like Nehemiah here by weeping and mourning and praying and fasting for the church, praying and fasting for its multiplication, for its reformation, for its renewal, for its rebuilding, for its restoration. Because the church is the city of God. She deserves our concern. She deserves our prayer. She deserves our sacrifice and service, all so that she might be restored and built up and reformed and renewed. And this, Nehemiah's response to the plight of the city of God, the city in need, is exemplary. And so lastly, let's look at the man God sent. We're introduced to Nehemiah in the first verse of the book. Read this again. Verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. So he gives his name, which is significant because his name means the Lord has comforted. And then he gives us his father's name. And he gives us his father's name because he wants the readers to know he's a Jewish man. 
He wants the readers to know that, that although he is in Susa, although he is in exile, although he has never set foot in Jerusalem, he is a citizen of the city of God. And the year that he states and the, and the place that he says are also significant. He says, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. So the 20th year uh, is in reference to the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. This is a new king. Artaxerxes is the king of Persia. And Nehemiah is in Susa because that's where the king lived during the winter time. Uh, it's it's uh, in, in modern day, I'm going to butcher this, but I think it's Shush, Shush in the city of, it's a city in Iran. And that's where his winter home, that's where the winter home of Artaxerxes was. Uh, and it's the month of Kislev. We know that's the, the, around the months of November and December. And so King Artaxerxes is in his winter home in Susa. Nehemiah is there because Nehemiah is employed by King Artaxerxes. In verse 11 of, of Nehemiah 1, we learn that Nehemiah's job is he's a cupbearer to the king, which means that he's a most trusted servant to the king. He would taste the king's wine before it was served in order to make sure that it contained no poison. And then he would come and bring the king his wine. Uh, the cupbearers also carried a number of other responsibilities, like managing financial accounts and the like. And so Nehemiah, he's, he's a powerful and influential, probably a very gifted man, as most people in his position would be. But there's also something else I want you to notice. Nehemiah is also a layman. Okay, he's a lay person. He wasn't a priest like Ezra. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't what would be, you know, the modern day equivalent to a pastor. And yet he is the one that we see in this book who God sends to do a magnificent work for the kingdom and building up of the church. And he is the one who God sends for this work of the restoration of the city of God. And so let me encourage you, don't ever think that pastors, deacons, officers of the church are the only ones who are called to do significant things and play significant roles in the city of God. God, God is in the restoration business. We, we see that clearly in the book of Nehemiah. He's in the business of restoring lives. He's in the business of restoring his people. He's in the business of bringing and forming and building a people for himself. And here's what else we see in the book of Nehemiah. If you're a citizen of this city, then you are too. Restoration is a family business, okay? It's, it's the business of the family of God. God is in the business of restoration. It's a family business, which means that if you are in the family, you are in this business too. Whether you're a minister or not, you are included in God's restoration product. You, you don't have to have all the right credentials. You don't have to go to seminary. You, you don't have to have tons of experience. Like Nehemiah probably didn't have tons of experience building walls. He didn't have tons of experience leading a reformation and renewal and faithful corporate worship and biblical living in the city of Jerusalem. But here he is being led by God to build up the city of God in these ways. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been filled by the Holy Spirit for the same purpose. And that doesn't mean that you need to become a pastor or a deacon or devote 20 hours of your week to the life of the church or anything like that. It's going to look different for each and every person. I don't know precisely what it looks like for you, but here's what I do know. You've been called of God to build up the city of God. You've been called of God to build up his church. Like this church 
is not my project, my ministry. This church is not Dan's ministry. This church is not JJ's ministry or the deacons, uh, Brian, Mike, Sarah. It's not their ministry. It's not their responsibility. It is, but it's also yours. Don't ever think, well, you know, this church is the pastor's ministry and we come to the pastor's ministry every week, but we have our own ministries and our own things going on. That is a worldly mindset. Get that mindset out of your head. If you're a citizen of the city of God, then the city of God is your concern. If you're a member of the church, then the church is your concern. And that doesn't mean that you have to devote the same amount of hours that, to it that I do or the other pastors do or the deacons do, but it does mean that this church is your responsibility. It, this church, its maturity and sanctification is your responsibility. Its health and vitality is your responsibility. Its multiplication is your responsibility. When the church is weak and vulnerable and the people ashamed, take responsibility for it. And that's what we see Nehemiah do and, and do in such an exemplary way. Look at his response when he learns of the great need of the city of God. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Notice that he's a man who cares. He cares for this church. When he learns about the city of God in need, he sits down and weeps and mourns for days. He doesn't say, not my problem. Got a nice cushy job. Got a nice paycheck coming in, powerful position. Those yokels can't get their act together. That's their problem. Forget about it. No, he's broken over the state of his people. How do you respond when the people of this church are in need? How do you respond when there are people in need in our congregation? How do you respond when you hear of weaknesses and sinfulness in this church and in the universal church? Do you close yourself off? Do you harden yourself? Are you moved with compassion? Do you care for the church? Next, we see that Nehemiah is a man who prays. He doesn't just care for the church. He prays for the church. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We'll get into this more next week, but he spends a significant amount of time in prayer for the church. Of course, you know, he had his daily duties of of being a cupbearer to the king, but he prayed day and night for the church and he fasted for the church. If you do the math, you'll find that he did this for, he did this fasting and praying day and night for the church for four months before speaking to the king about Jerusalem. So I ask you, do you pray for the church? When was the last time you interceded for fellow followers of Christ? And and, and listen, I'm, I'm convinced that this is one of the most important things you can give yourself to as a member of a church to pray for, to intercede for these fellow followers of Jesus that you've linked arms with to follow Jesus together. You're called to that, to intercede, to pray for the church. And lastly, we see that Nehemiah is a man who serves. His care and prayer moves him to action on behalf of the people of God. And we'll see this as soon as we move throughout the book, but, but he, he asks the king for permission and for help to rebuild the city. He goes to the city. He leads this project of rebuilding. He helps Ezra with the reforming of the people according to the word of God and the renewal of biblical worship. And he faces severe opposition from without and within the people of God while doing so. He continues, though, to serve faithfully and sacrificially for the building up of the city of God. And you're called to the same. 
Christian, you've been called, you've been equipped, you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to build up the people and city of God, to join God in this work of restoring the city of God. God is in the restoration business and his people are too. That's what we see in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is sent to help lead the restoration of the city of God. And ultimately, Nehemiah, though, he points us to a greater restoration. He, he wasn't the only man God sent to restore the city of God. Nehemiah foreshadows the coming of Jesus, who was at the right hand of the king on high, but who came down and he went to the same city that Nehemiah went to, the city of Jerusalem. And he too faced opposition from without and within. And he was actually flogged and spit on and crucified and killed by this opposition but he was crucified and killed in order to form and build a people who have been scattered all over the face of the earth to be one people. He sent the Holy Spirit to bring this scattered people together, to gather this scattered people together so that they might be the place and the people of his presence, the city of God on the earth. And he's not finished with this work of restoration. Three days after he died, he rose from the grave and he's now seated at the right hand of the king and there's coming a day when he will return for his people and he will restore us completely. He will restore us to be what we were created and redeemed to be. And we will live with him forever as the people, as the temple, as the presence of God, as the city of God. And that's where this wonderful story, the story that we've seen so far, that's where this wonderful story is headed. And until then, we're called to join God in this work of restoration. We're called to join him in the building up of his people. Because until that day, it will always be a city in need. And so in the coming weeks, let's look at Nehemiah being mindful of the story that it takes place in. Being mindful of how we might build up the city of God in our day. And being mindful of Jesus Christ, who is the man God sent to restore us as the city of God forever. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for sending Christ to build and form a people for yourself. We thank you for sending the Spirit to gather the the lost elect, the elect exiles from all the nations of the earth into your people, into one people. And we ask, Lord, that we would participate in that mission, that we would be a city on a hill, the light of the world, in order to gather the lost elect here in our city and that we would send, that we would be sent out throughout the world and to the nations throughout the world for that purpose. Lord, and help us to remember that Jesus is coming, that he is going to come and restore us, to restore our lives forever and help us to look forward to that day and help us to be about his business until he returns. We pray in his name. Amen.